Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Hello, podcast listeners. It's Connor from Intelligence Squared. Before we go to this week's episode, I want to let you know about a very special offer we have for all our listeners. As many of you will be aware, we have migrated to the online space in recent months and launched a new subscription service called Intelligence Squared Plus. We've been having some fantastic debates and discussions from Mehdi Hassan on Iran to Thomas Piketty on capital and ideology. So if you would like to take part in these events, ask your questions to some of our speakers and even watch back all our previous events, then please go to intelligencesquared.com and subscribe today with a special 20% off discount using the code podcast. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And join us over the next few months as we deal with issues such as taming the coronavirus pandemic and look at the upcoming election in the United States with New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman. So get started today and join the debate via the link in our podcast description. And this week, we were delighted to be joined by Catherine Belton, author of the new book, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Took on the West. And she had a fascinating conversation with Edward Lucas, columnist at The Times and a security expert on Europe and Russia. We hope you enjoy. Hello, I'm Edward Lucas, and I've spent most of my life dealing with the region that we used to call Eastern Europe. And that included four years in Moscow as the economist's correspondent there when I briefly overlapped with Catherine Belton, who is our guest today. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Your book has had a, a tremendous reception, even though you had the misfortune to try and launch it in the middle of the um, pandemic, which is probably the worst time for um, publishing, although paradoxically, it's a great time for people to sit at home and read books. And summing it up very briefly, what you've done is to explain really what it says on the tin, where Putin came from, who the people around him are, how they came to power, and what they're doing. And that sounds like quite a straightforward uh, task. You could say that about Donald Trump, you know, Trump's people, you know, he, where he came from, who his people are, how he won the election, what he's doing in America. But of course, there's a huge difference that the, the, the roots of the Putin system are absolutely buried in a mixture of fear and secrecy. And your book, and I can say this having read, I think, pretty much every book that's been written about this subject, has done the best job, the best possible job, certainly so far, possibly ever, in, um, in, in explaining this. So I want to start off by just asking you, what 
has been so difficult? Why has it taken so long for anyone to write the book that you've that you've that you've now written? I think because um, I think yeah, I think it's because they are extremely skilled in the art of the cover up. I mean, they haven't wanted people to know the roots, which, as, as you say very well, have been buried in, in fear and secrecy. I think what happened with Putin in Dresden when he was serving there as a KGB officer from eighty five to nineteen. 90 is, is a case in point and they actually destroyed all the records of what the KGB were up to in, in Dresden they burned everything or they shipped truckloads out to Moscow but when Putin was uh, running for his election as, as president uh, 20 years ago he also was skilled enough to give a series of interviews there was one particular book of interviews that he gave as part of his sort of presidential campaign and which he said, of course, all these rumours of my sort of nefarious activities in Dresden, of course, that's rubbish. We haven't hidden anything. It's all there, plain to see in the Stasi records. And actually, they're not there. Uh, there's nothing left apart from a few fragments, a few photos here and there. There are birthday greetings from uh, from the Stasi to Putin, but, but that is it. There's nothing else. Of course, it might seem... And Putin's defenders would say, well, this is really a pretty trivial question. You know, he had this career in his 20s and 30s. It happened to be in the intelligence services. But you know, so what? Lots of people work in the intelligence services early on and then move, in, move into other things. And the intelligence services are naturally quite secret. So, yeah, it's, it's not that big a deal, really. But actually, it's a tremendously important thing that we still don't really know what he was up to in the late 70s. And eighties, and it is the key to everything that happened since. So, um, just tell us a bit what you were able to discover about his career in East Germany, the or the Soviet zone of um, Soviet-occupied zone of Germany, as purists might, uh, might might call it. What you found out, and perhaps also if there's anything that you didn't find out that you still think is is, is a mystery that uh, remains to be uncovered. <laughs> yes. Um, so, I mean, what little there is is to glean is is possible to to, to find out from interviewing kind of uh, former colleagues from that period, and there are some records around of what the Stasi was up to at that time. Putin, when he was there he was actually the main kind of liaison officer between the KGB and the Stasi at the time it's clear that they were involved in technology smuggling operations uh, which again sort of uh, were very instructive for how Putin would operate later because they use sort of front cop companies they use sort of very uh, kind of money laundering techniques to sort of evade detection and it was always done through a, a network of, of trusted allies you know, they needed to get technology into the Soviet Union because at the time there was a Western embargo against uh, any uh, technology that could be used potentially for military means entering the Soviet Union. And, and Dresden was a real hub for that. It had a, a big uh, computer a factory uh, called Robotron, which had cloned the IBM in the 70s and was continuing to be a centre for such activities in the 80s when, when Putin was there. And what we do know from 
the Stasi records is that there was a close uh, comrade of his, sort of a very round uh, German named Matthias Warnig, who later became a key persona in Putin's inner circle once he did reach the presidency. And Putin was working very closely with him in the 80s. Uh, and we know that also from one defector who had worked with Putin at that time who defected to the West. He said that Varnig was running sort of these technology smuggling activities through the guise of a business consultancy based in Dresden and he was working very closely with Putin. So, 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 so I think it's really important for people who don't necessarily follow this as obsessively as you, you and I do, that the root of the Putin system, or part of the root, is the overlap between illegal business and intelligence. Um, and when I say illegal business, it's business that looks legal but has an, um, an illegal side to it. And it was one of the things the KGB was really good at in a kind of narrow way was using business ties with the West, um, whether for intelligence purposes or to get um, technology that they couldn't, they couldn't otherwise obtain. And Putin was actually at the heart of that, which is now what we see in modern Russia on a much, much greater scale with all the kind of fusion of political and business power that characterizes the modern Kremlin. Yes, in, in, indeed. So, I mean, I think it really, what, what he was doing in Dresden was really a training ground for how he would operate later. It was sort of obfuscation and also uh, the fact that through some of these technology smuggling deals, they were also preparing for uh, to preserve their intelligence networks in case the communist regime did collapse. The Western German intelligence services also suspected that Putin was part of an special operation being conducted by the KGB's foreign intelligence arm called Operation Luch or Operation Sunbeam which was preparing to recruit uh, a network of operatives from the second third tier of political circles in East Germany that could continue to operate for the Soviets or for the Russian KGB even if the East German regime the communist regime there fell because they could see almost the writing on the wall then because remember this was the this was the end of the 80s even when Putin arrived in Dresden in 85 the the East Germany was living on borrowed time and it was actually living on funds it had borrowed from West Germany and not from the Soviet Union I mean things were sort of Soviet empire was really on its last legs but in those conditions uh, some of the technology smuggling deals that were going on at the time were also being used as a way to siphon funds. They siphoned hundreds of millions of dollars through these deals, which sometimes were just fake. There was one deal to build a hard disk factory at a plant near Dresden, uh, which was the most expensive, to be the most expensive ever built in East Germany, and yet the plant was never built and the money was siphoned off into front companies, belonging again to a Stasi agent who also later became very key in sort of Putin's financial empire in Europe. So you can really see the roots of his regime in, in how he operated then. But what also became apparent as I continued research was also that it was also a training ground in active measures against the West, because this was another 
part of the Soviet Union's failings. Then from the 60s onwards, the Soviet Union knew it couldn't um, compete militarily against the West, that it was lagging behind technologically. And so instead, they'd resort to kind of uh, these so-called active measures, which uh, intentionally, to to all intents and purposes, are are political assassinations. Uh, They are, you know, efforts to sow chaos and discord in other countries and actually also include support of terrorism. I'm very familiar from late, mm-hmm. late, later on. Yes, yes, yes. And we, we, we've, we've seen that very clearly uh, in the last couple of years as well. But what Putin, Putin was doing then, according to this same defector who left for the West, this defector told a tale of how Putin had actually been a handler for a notorious neo-Nazi who went to the West and then returned to East Germany where he helped stoke the rise of the far right after the Berlin Wall's fall that he'd also uh, been trying to extract a a sort of untraceable poison from a professor and trying to extract it from the professor by planting pornographic material on him no one knows whether this operation ever came off but according to the defector that's what Putin was up to then and then uh, I came across we're covering too much ground here because this is all just an absolute feast and i want to get on a bit to active measures active measures a bit a bit a bit later but i think that what we're seeing here is your demolition of many of the preconceptions um you know preconception number one the soviet union is history um it doesn't matter actually everything about the putin regime has its roots in the soviet collapse and this point about the money is tremendously important the soviet union did go bust but as it went bust huge quantities of money from kgb funds and communist party funds were sort of sent in sort of financial lifeboats to the west and were there as a reserve to then pay for the revanche of these um, KGB and former communist uh, people to come back to power in um, what seemed like the sort of absolutely impoverished world of, of 1990s Russia. But your book takes Putin then into that world. He comes back rather sort of threadbare, downbeat figure. If he was a dog, he'd be limping with his tail between his legs. Yeah, I think they, they, did, I think they, they took their fridge or something like that because there were no fridges to be had. But he has what seems like a rather um, low, um, low-grade job in the International Department of the, of the University and then moves from there to St. Petersburg Municipal Administration. But actually, as you explain the book, this is tremendously important because this is where you bring together the foreign trade expertise of the KGB, the criminality of post-Soviet Petersburg, the levers of power in terms of what the city administration can do, and this, uh, this extraordinary sort of mutant form of power takes shape, and Putin's right in the middle of it. Yes, that's a, it's an extremely good description of, of what went on, and I think, yes, when when Putin returned after the, the, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, his tail was indeed very much between his, his legs. I think even though they'd been preparing, I think the speed of the collapse 
rats took them by surprise and they did have to kind of polish off and destroy a lot of documents uh, at very rapid pace and there's the very well-known phrase about how Putin Putin felt when he was trying to ring for support when protesters were, were moving to encircle the KGB villa in Dresden where he was stationed and he'd been trying to phone up the local troops to get some kind of backup but he didn't receive any reply because they were waiting for a response from Moscow and Moscow was silent and, and for Putin this was just total horror for him that he couldn't believe that sort of Moscow had just let him go of the reins and abandoned them. As it turned out they didn't, the troops did turn up but with great delay and so, but when Putin was came back to, to Russia his, you know, his first uh, port of call was actually Moscow and in Moscow at the Moscow Centre he went to meet his old mentor and boss from Dresden who told him rather than staying at headquarters he should head for his hometown in Leningrad um, And it, but it wasn't actually a demotion because if he'd stayed in Moscow he probably would have been paper shuffling um, but in Leningrad what he did do as as you point out he he attached himself immediately to uh, one of the city's rising uh, democratic forces he well he first approached I'm told uh, another leader who turned him down because he just thought he looked far too fishy um, um, but he did manage to get a positive response from his ex-law professor Anatoly Sobchak who just happened to be the leading democrat of the city and it was also kind of just very uh, telling for what happened to sort of many foreign intelligence operatives of that era they didn't go anywhere and the KGB in essence wasn't a bust as many in the West believed it was and this is one of the reasons why again I, I wanted to, to, to work on this book because I think there was a lot of, of sort of information about what happened in that era that somehow kind of got brushed over in the tumult of the time there was so much going on there was so much chaos such enormous change that uh, people really kind of uh, weren't watching properly what uh, some elements of the KGB were doing and as you mentioned it was the foreign intelligence arm who'd been shifting all these funds into accounts in the west uh, ahead of the collapse in preparation because they were sort of far more clever than some of the more meat-headed types in the domestic service who were only involved in domestic control but the foreign intelligence types Putin included had been preparing and then when the fall came they were in the shadows working closely with the country's new democratic leaders and indeed it's it's possibly arguable that without their support uh, perhaps uh, Yeltsin may never have been able to, to come to power but that's an, another story in itself but so Putin kind of was attached as deputy to Anatoly Sobchak this rising democratic force who very rapidly was elected the city's mayor and from there he worked in the in in the shadows and what was a real breakthrough for me in my reporting and trying to understand what happened to these KGB networks after the fall was when I met uh, an ex-KGB operative called uh, Felipe Torova who'd actually worked with Putin on a very scandalous operation called the Oil for Food Scheme 
And this was this was something that has been sort of reported on a lot, uh, many times over since Putin rose to the presidency. It was seen this as this great scandal and as this sort of first indication of of, of his kleptocracy. But actually, what I found that there was actually another dimension to it. Uh, according to Turova, these uh, this oil for food scheme in which Putin had handed out uh, at least ninety two million dollars worth of licenses to crony firms to trade raw materials in exchange for food which St. Petersburg vitally needed at that time because all the mm-hmm. supply chain networks had broken down in the in the collapse and this sudden switch from a planned economy to, to freed prices and it was just total chaos and Putin was meant to be running this scheme to bring in food and so he'd handed out at least 92 million perhaps some other estimates said it could be maybe a billion to these crony firms and the food never turned up and there was a massive hoo-ha about it, a big stink the local parliament uh, uh, raised an inquiry and, and you know and a very brave yes. a very brave woman called Maria Sally yes. actually investigated this yes. and was then so terrified by what she found that she's refused to speak about it ever since yes i think she did give some give some interviews and i think but she was very much uh, frightened of uh, but she did what she found was uh, that putin was handing out uh, these licenses to crony firms and he was handing these uh, licenses out to actually sort of joint ventures which also had their roots in this sort of KGB effort to move money out of the Soviet Union ahead of the fall in order to preserve networks and what uh, this uh, Felipe Torova who worked with uh, Putin on the schemes told me is that actually the cash wasn't just sort of you just being stolen to to line pockets, but it was also being ostensibly the scheme was was set up to pay off uh, so-called friendly firms and in Soviet times friendly firms had been a key instrument to fund uh, the KGB's foreign influence operations, the Communist Party operations abroad. Friendly firms were KGB run intermediaries who very often sold equipment into the Soviet Union for infrastructure at vastly inflated prices and and they keep the profits and use it to fund uh, either Communist Party operations or other very much more nefarious operations. And Felipe Torovo told me that we had to pay these our debts to them, and this was a mechanism whereby we could do so. Yes, um, and and I think you know, for many people listening to this would say, "Wow, well, I obviously didn't know that the KGB was so adept at kind of money laundering and skimming profits, and I didn't know that the." Um, KGB, uh, at least the foreign intelligence bit of it, um, proved so durable and survived in post-communist Russia. And I, you know, interesting to know that a man like Putin goes back to such a um, lucrative and influential job. But in in a way, that that's all kind of you know page six stuff. The the, the thing that really makes people's jaw drop is that this guy who seems to have sort of Teflon ability to avoid saying or doing anything sort of notable as far as the outside world is concerned suddenly. Turns up in Moscow, gets a job, if, um, first of all, a job in the Kremlin, then the head of the FSB, and then suddenly he's prime minister. And people, and yeah, the first question that people were asking was, who is Vladimir Putin? So how did he, how did he make this transition from a um, sort of obscure, corrupt bureaucrat in St. Petersburg to being the number two man in, in Russia and, in fact, you know, then the 
president des- designate um, because he very quickly moved from being prime minister to, to being president. Yeah, um, I think I think partly because he always had a network of support in the security services when he was in Saint Petersburg. He was being watched over by quite a prominent KGB general who'd been exiled from from France and sort of sent back to the Soviet Union. He was watching over him. Some say that he was in touch with the former KGB chief Vladimir Khrushchev. I wasn't able to verify that. But what is true is that, yes, he did manage to rise extremely rapidly through the Kremlin. And I think this was partly because he had some support in the security services and partly because he, he was quite skilled at sort of presenting himself as being very unassuming, un- distinctly unambitious. Uh, Valentin Yumashev, who is the Kremlin chief of staff at that time and Yeltsin's uh, son-in-law to be, basically explained that sort of in one instant in 97 when Putin was already deputy chief of staff Putin actually offered to step down and resign his position because he felt he'd done enough by then and done all he could and maybe it was time to go and this in fact only burnished his credentials in the eyes of Yumashev because in those days the whole of the Kremlin was a den of vipers and to have someone who seemed uniquely unambitious really was a plus in his eyes and plus he was quite effective at sort of dealing with day-to-day tasks and also at being quite charming and he always presented himself as a liberal he had the distinction of of having worked so closely with the former mayor of St Petersburg who was still seen as a leading democrat and he Putin went so far as to help his former mentor Anatoly Anatoly Sobchak escape uh, from Russia when he was being pursued by by old guard prosecutors and Putin helped him sort of get whisked away to Paris and this again sort of burnished his credentials in the eyes of the Yeltsin family who were running the country then. And um, they they and they they were in a very tough position. And another thing that became apparent as I was doing the reporting was that they were really kind of facing a, a deep threat. Not only by by 1999, not only because Yeltsin's position had been weakened so badly in this terrible financial crisis of August 98, but they were also facing a potential criminal prosecution over some credit cards that they'd been given by a construction guy from Switzerland who'd landed an enormous contract to that he was actually actually yeah he was actually he was actually Al- Albanian, oh, wasn't yes, he? Albanian, sort of Alba- but his it was, company was based like, in like, Switzerland. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. But it, and it was an extraordinary um, sort of comic opera story. But it didn't at the time. People didn't really, I think, realise the gravity of what was going on. That you saw, you know, Russia seemed to be in danger of falling apart. There were all these powerful regional barons. There was. Uh, you know, Yeltsin fighting, you know, in, not in the best of health, to put it mildly, and the um, you know, financial crisis, you know, largely based on because casino capitalism had not for the first time blown up. Um, but pe- people, there was a sort of very profound feeling that this was not really threatening, um, that you know, obviously worried that Russia was a nuclear power. But you know, it, it was, it's an extra- extraordinary piece of rebranding that someone who was you know, actually not very competent presents himself as competent. Someone who's from the sort of extremely anti-Western KGB presents himself as a, as a, as a Westernized. As someone who is, uh, you know, a, 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 
quite quite a bit of a Russian nationalist, presents himself as a cosmopolitan figure, and that none of this, and, and that his rise to power is is seen as is broadly welcomed in the West when he becomes prime minister. So a great sigh of relief, and then he becomes president, and an even bigger sigh of relief, and people didn't really realise at all what they what what they were dealing with. Yes, I think yes, that's very that's very true, and and one of Putin's great skills has really to been really to have been a chameleon. Uh, he kind of he's very skilled at kind of fitting into whatever environment uh, he finds himself in while kind of leaving his his true intentions covered up and he, he managed to dupe the the Yeltsin family incredibly well and as you say the the west for some time because um, I think the Yeltsin family really did believe that he was he was liberal and progressive and com- indeed compared to the alternative at the time Yevgeny Primakov who was a former uh, spy master and a, they saw him as a dinosaur of, of communism that Putin really presented a much better alternative and he kind of gave speeches where he paid lip surface to liberal ideas and indeed in the first few years of his presidency he did kind of uh, unleash a kind of a series of, of liberal seeming reforms uh, whereby income taxes were reduced and private land ownership was allowed and so yeah everyone was, was op- opening their arms to him and none the least that, that Putin seemed willing to to make overtures to the West. Everyone remembers how after September the 11th in 2001, after the terrorist attacks then, Putin allowed the US to use Central Asia as a transit corridor for its operations in Afghanistan. But Putin was always, he's very transactional. He was always uh, expecting something in return from the West. And when he didn't get it, that was the beginning of a deep disappointment. And the, again, sort of more seeds for the the fight back that that we see today yes well it's a very um interesting point that the he he got away for so long with being seen as as a sort of pro um western pro business guy even though he started almost immediately controlling the media taking media channels away from the oligarchs which you which you, you depict then oligarchs um either kowtowing to him or ending up in in exile or or, or in jail um, but there's one element we haven't touched on which i we i think we just need to spool back a little bit which is organized crime i think people have got the idea that there's a sort of fusion of business and state power and spookdom and that is all sort of more or less at the belatedly collapsed clear in the outside world's eyes but there's this other thread of of links to gangsters which um i think goes back actually to the kgb's relationship with the soviet mafia but but this has always been perhaps the, the, the touchiest point about putin's own biography is his his gang, gangster friends how much were you, were you able to find out about that <laughs> yes i made a couple of trips to uh, st petersburg a few years ago and uh, yes it's possible to to, to fish around uh, there is some Russian reporters, very brave ones, who've also taken the lead on this. And, um, you know, I think the, the, Definitely, uh, when Putin was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, how they ran the city was was very much hand in hand with organized crime. The organized crime leaders were essentially the footmen for his uh, KGB. They were the they were essentially the the foot soldiers. Uh, sorry, I mean they were the ones who would kind of enforce and and keep <laughs> keep the peace for them and make sure money was being sent their way. So I mean, in 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 some in some way. 
ways he was forced into cooperation with them you know I think for them to have had put for Putin and his cronies it was very important to have access to sort of the city's main strategic asset which was the seaport it was the gateway for all imports and exports out of the city including oil that was controlled by some very fierce gangsters and at one point it seems that Putin was in conflict with them. This is very early on in in 92 and he was forced to uh, send his daughters out of St. Petersburg because he feared uh, so much the the consequences of this standoff but eventually uh, he 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 and the rest of his guys made an accommodation with this organised crime group which was called the Tambov and they basically jointly controlled the seaport with its oil terminal and various other operations going on there and one ex uh, Moscow KGB guy who was involved in those sort of initial operations basically sort of washes his hands of the St. Petersburg KGB guys because he says look these guys are the most ruthless ones they'll stop at nothing in order to uh, get power and what had the, the readiness of Putin to join hands and join forces with the organized crime guys is for him like a real case that, that illustrated that uh, this Moscow KGB guy would have nothing to do with them but he said look St. Petersburg guys will stop at nothing and indeed they, they work very closely with the Tambov organized crime group to control the city's cash flows and make sure that they got their own cut but it did as you say sort of stem back to this long tradition of KGB working quite closely with organised crime. They were always convenient foot soldiers for them and also in in funnelling funds into the West. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. Life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. And there is an absolutely electrifying anecdote, which um, I strongly recommend all the people who listen to this, who obviously you know, buy, will buy your book, I hope, um, uh, uh, of describing how a Western businessman who's trying to do a deal with the city, city's authorities goes to um, meet a mafia don in his lair first, and the next day um, meets the mafia don and Putin, a representative of Putin and meeting in the, in, 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 in the same office in order to nail down the deal. But I, I think we, we, we must move on because we could talk for literally <laughs> hours yes. about this and there's a lot more. So, so I think that the next sort of big inflection point is, and we, we've seen Putin emerge from the shadows. He um, has his successful career in the bureaucracy. Then he becomes Russia's boss. He deals with the oligarchs and still the West is basically willing to cut him some slack. They say, you know, Russia, difficult place. He seems to be in charge. We can do business with him. And then there's this sort of quite sharp inflection towards visible anti-Westernism, um, where he takes the gloves off. And partly this is because the oil price is up and Russia can afford to do what it wants. It's no longer sort of begging for money from the IMF. But also because he's he, perhaps his view of the world has maybe changed or evolved a bit. And um, that seems to start off with the um, in about 2006. So talk us through Putin's sort of turn to open anti-Westernism. Well, by, by that time, Russia's coffers had, had filled very fast because, of course, the oil price had, had climbed rapidly ever since he came to the presidency. And by 2006, it was it was pretty high indeed, and the coffers coffers were filled. But um, and also uh, his men, his KGB uh, cronies, had been able to take over much of the country's strategic cash flow by then uh, and essentially by subverting the country's court system and threatening any independent minded tycoon with taking over their companies if they didn't obey as they did with Mikhail Khodorkovsky uh, that story of the UCAS takeover that is so well known by now and so really they were already able to flex their muscles but as I mentioned sort of maybe initially when Putin came to power he had seemed a little bit he had taken a more accommodating stance towards the West and and to what degree his uh, viewpoint actually evolved from from this, or, or to what degree it was stoked by disappointment, it's 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 not really clear. I mean, I was told that sort of Putin was was a bit of a kind of a, a Cassandra. You know, he sort of was he kind of had some Western leanings, but he was also surrounded by these KGB men who had very much a zero sum mindset and still uh, kind of hankered for the Cold War and, and saw nothing, saw it their duty to restore kind of Russia's standing in the world or its standing as an imperial power, only now they wanted to use capitalism as a, as a weapon for restoring power and as part of that they needed to take over the country's cash flows and they were the ones sort of provoking Putin to take a stronger line against the West, but I think it was a kind of a gradual process in that the KGB men 
everyone around him kind of moulded his viewpoint, but he was also disappointed that having made overtures to the West earlier on in his presidency, he was r- routinely ignored. Sort of after opening Central Asia up to US forces, he go on. Mm-hmm. This, this may be one of the rare issues on which we perhaps disagree a bit. Mm. And I, um, I, I, although I loved your book, I mm. slightly, slightly disagree with some of the foreign policy stuff. And there's a great quote here, which is from Dmitry Manulsky, who actually taught Khrushchov, mm. um, mm-hmm. the former Soviet leader, um, that he used to teach at the Lenin School of Political Warfare. And he said, um, war to the hilt is inevitable. This is in 1930. Mm. We're not strong enough to attack today but our time will come in 20 or 30 years to win we shall need the element of surprise mm-hmm. so we'll begin by launching the most spectacular peace movement on record mm-hmm. there will be electrifying overtures and unheard of concessions mm-hmm. the capitalist countries stupid and decadent will rejoice to cooperate in their own destruction <laughs> they will leap at another chance to be friends and as soon as as soon as their guard is down we shall smash them with our clenched fist <laughs> um, and so w- whether or not Putin was provoked or started from a, um, you know, a hide and bide, I'll wait till we're, we're strong enough. But the fact is, we have seen a sharp escalation in confrontation with the with the West, including something which you uh, touched on earlier, the use of active measures. This is not the old sort of um, Cold War idea of tank armies waiting to thunder across the North European plain. It's a very different sort of warfare, and one one which plays very much to Putin's strengths in in, in the KGB. Um, so, t- talk talk us through a little bit about how Putin wages his war on the West. Yeah, it's a it's a hybrid war, and I think really he was able to identify this crucial chink and, and weakness in the Western system when the West was indeed just sort of lapping up the return of stability under Putin and not really paying attention or not really caring about the methods he used to shore up his own power and, and take over the economy. So I think he, he could see that for the West that profit was very often the only guiding motivation uh, that all these Western companies were lining up to take part in the economic power grab being undertaken by the Kremlin and they didn't really care about this sort of subversion of the legal process along the way so you know he could see the these the these weaknesses and and i think once you've been able to kind of gather sort of hundreds of billions of dollars under your command you're not clearly not going to uh, spend it all on uh buying mansions and yachts it's not just his power system is not just about kleptocracy it's about being able to use these cash flows to buy off and undermine uh, politicians in the west and so I think a lot of it um so stems back to sort of these early uh, operations that he was involved in in Dresden. You see the same type of uh, kind of operations in which sort of money is siphoned off into front companies. And then some of the people involved in those operations, then there was a Stasi agent called Martin Schlaff, who was helping move money for the Stasi to preserve networks then in Dresden in the 80s. And later, uh, Schlaff in 
the 2000s was caught uh, bribing the Israeli prime minister and indeed there was a criminal investigation into his activities then and he was close to many leaders in the Middle East and this is where some of the active measures began and then they kind of spread very uh, much further into Western Europe sort of where, where you reach kind of uh, 2008-2009 you know Russian capital is, is pretty much embedded into the West because the West has opened its doors uh, to Russia in the hopes that sort of Russia's market transformation would mean that it was going to be part of this sort of Western-led global order that it would have to fit to the West's rules uh, rather than have, uh, as, as did turn out, Russia try to subvert the West rules from the inside. And I think it does stem uh, partly to kind of slight Western arrogance and sort of entitlement in not really caring, uh, at least as far as lawyers, bankers and other professional services people are concerned, not really caring about where the cash is coming from. Okay, so it might be stolen, but that's not really our business. Uh, No one viewed any of this cash as potentially being a security threat, which it turns out it has been because people haven't been able to trace that be able to track the money flows by now because it goes through such a sophisticated web of offshore companies that it's almost impossible to trace and now it's in our political system and disrupting the western order and and i think and we sadly we don't have time to go into this in uh, too much detail and perhaps your libel lawyers will be yeah. glad that you um that you can't but I, I do want to talk a little bit about sourcing because um the story you sketched is you know a lot of people have tried to tell it you've been I think uniquely successful in actually being able to get people to explain who did what, when. So, um, obviously, some of your sources are, are anonymous and should stay that. But can you explain to us how did you manage to get inside this story and tell it with such sort of granularity and such uh, and, 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 and such authority? I think, firstly, because I had so much time to do it. <laughs> I don't think uh, a few other people have, have spent so much time working on the book. Uh, it's probably through to my own inefficiencies. Um, I was able to talk to people for a very long time and I think as well I was very lucky in the sense that I've been able to build relationships with quite prominent people in the Russian business world and sort of in other official circles while I was Moscow correspondent for the FT and I was able to continue those relationships while working on the book and and writing a book is a a real luxury because yeah you're not sort of uh, interviewing people on deadline you can talk to them sort of on a much more kind of personal basis and you can go back to them over and over again and ask questions so it was a very gradual process and yes I did spend a great deal of time. We've almost got to finish now but um, can you just tell us uh, two questions one just tell us a bit about yourself how did you actually I know you speak fantastic um, Russian and um, you know the place absolutely backwards how did you first get into this where where, where did where people said who is Vladimir Putin who is Catherine Belton? Yeah, good question. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I studied Russian at university and had nothing better to do after I graduated than, than head out to Moscow, where I fast was able to find a job at a local English language newspaper there. I'd always been fascinated by Russia when I was growing up, and I'd sort of 
managed to land in Russia just as the Soviet Union was collapsing in December 91 and made a huge kind of impact on me. It was a totally different world and I was fascinated from ever after. So yes, I arrived uh, in Russia after graduating in 98 and I worked at various English language newspapers and then then for Business Week and then for the Financial Times for seven years. and my final question is: You've uncovered many mysteries in the course of uh, of, of of writing this book. I just wonder: Is there any puzzle that you weren't able to solve? If if um, a fairy um, or the Russian equivalent <laughs> um, would appear and say uh, the golden fish—that's the the, the 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 way the Russians um, get their wishes—and um, say you can, I can give you one wish. I will answer you um, a a question you have not been able to answer about something to do with the sort of the Putin power system. What would that question be? I think, well, would I be allowed to have two? You, the golden fish is often very generous. <laughs> okay. Well, then the first one would be, I'd still like to know more about sort of what Putin's op- operations were in Dresden. Obviously, I began chipping away at that, but I still think it's it's very much the tip of the iceberg. What was uh, the KGB's involvement then with various terrorist outfits who were engaged in a very nefarious activities in West Germany then, including the Red Army faction? I had one source on that but uh, wasn't able to speak to anyone else. Uh, But I'd be really glad uh, if I were to find somebody else who could speak about that. Uh, I think there's one particular person who's currently in jail that I'd like to speak to. And the second wish, again, it was, you know, it was quite a a leap of, uh, but it was also a leap I took uh, with a sense of responsibility. I had one uh, Kremlin insider who was brave enough to speak about sort of uh, the possible Kremlin involvement in some of the terrible terrorist attacks of Putin's presidency, uh, including the apartment bombings and the Dubrovka theatre siege. And this Kremlin insider did tell some quite uh, toe-curling stories about uh, possible Kremlin involvement in these activities in order to shore up Putin's position in power. Yes, uh, a lot. I did find other circumstantial evidence that, again, sort of uh, points to Kremlin involvement in in both these attacks, including a a Moscow prosecutor's report for the Dubrovka theatre attack. But yes, I think it would be great if more such insiders were brave enough to come forward and and think we might actually see that more and more because I think Putin, although he's trying to uh, enshrine his position in power for another 12 years, I think he's running out of tricks to play and we're starting to see more and more internal dissent. So my greatest wish is that, yeah, more such insiders will start speaking out and that is the, um, the the note on which you end the book, which is in a way a slightly optimistic one, sad for Russia, but perhaps good for us, that the KGB system sort of got eventually completely calcified and, and, and broke down and that Putin has replicated this in in, in, in modern Russia. I'm perhaps not quite as um, optimistic on, on that as, as, as you are, but these um, matters will be no doubt discussed 
by us and by others in the months and years ahead. So, Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Catherine Belton, former correspondent for the Financial Times and author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. I'm Edward Lucas, Times columnist with the SEPA think tank in Washington and author of a book called The New Cold War, which scratched the surface of things to which Catherine has gone far, far deeper. And for future events and podcasts, please visit intelligencesquared.com and follow me on Twitter and Catherine Belton. And in the meantime, thanks very much indeed for joining us on this podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.